Good morning. Today, as we continue in our sermon series on the hope of heaven, we turn our focus to the last day. Throughout Scripture, our God has given us much warning, much loving preparation for what is to come. Alternatively, or alternately, excuse me, as you look through Scripture, you'll see mention of the last day or the day of the Lord. There's a message from our Father meant to encourage those who are in Christ and to awaken those who are not. See, the last day, the day of our Lord, is a pointer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. A day when He will usher in the day of resurrection, which will also be the day of judgment. It is a common and repeated theme throughout Scripture. I recommend you keep your bulletins open. It'll be the easiest way to follow along. We'll make our way through the various passages over the course of the sermon. As we prepare to, to look there, would you bow with me in prayer? Holy and gracious Father, we come before you this day humbly, dependently, attentively, asking, pleading that you would give us the presence of your spirit, that you would, you would anoint our ears to hear the message that you alone have for us this morning. Lord God, this message is for your glory. Pray that it is, would be for our good. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Are you the kind of person who plans for the future? Or do you just sort of take it as it comes? <laughs> do, uh, do the future events, or the prospect of future events, tend to impact or affect your business today? Or is your approach more of, I'll ignore it and hope for the best? <laughs> week of friend of mine called me and, and wanted to talk about his retirement planning. He wanted to process that a little bit with me. And so we had, a, we had that conversation. And then the very next morning, I got an email from, from my advisor offering some suggestions for my retirement planning. <laughs> it's not anytime soon. I wonder if it will ever come, but I hope it does. <laughs> so I plan for the possibility uh, of that day. What about you? Many of us spend an inordinate amount of time planning for, saving for a day that, quite frankly, may or may not come. It occupies much of our, our thought life. It, it causes us anxiousness. And yet, the Word of God points to another day. 
a day that most certainly will come for all. Talking about this, the last day, the day of the Lord. And as I've thought about that day, over the course of this week, I've asked myself the question, why preach on the last day? The Word of God preaches on the last day. I believe the Lord gives us that teaching in order to call us to wrestle with how to live this day in light of that one to come. So what is that day? It's the day of resurrection. Resurrection is the central hope of the Christian life. It's the centerpiece of the Christian life and the Christian calendar. We mark all of our Christian calendar around Easter, the day in which Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And when he did, he authenticated every word that he spoke. He authenticated the death that he died on the cross. And he also, in rising from the grave, sealed the victory. You see, Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection. But who will experience that resurrection? All. We look to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. On that day, on the last day, there will be a blessed reunion of body and soul. You recall a couple of weeks ago, we spoke on the intermediate state. And as we talked about the intermediate state, we said that, that it was marked by uh, the death of those who would die before the day of resurrection. And, and upon their death, the souls of believers would be made perfect in holiness, would immediately pass into glory, and their bodies, being still united to Christ, would rest in their grave un. Till the resurrection. This is that day. This is that day when, when they would receive new, glorified, but perfected, resurrected bodies. Now, we're going to speak to that next week. Next week, our focus is going to be on resurrected bodies. But know this today, that we will all experience eternity in bodily form. So on that day, the dead will rise first. But then, so will those who are alive. They will receive resurrected bodies. This passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, it's not speaking of some mystical secret rapture. 
This is not a partial coming of the Lord so that he can whisk away a church so that they can avoid tribulation. Folks, look at the world around you. We're experiencing that now. No, this passage is talking about the coming of the Lord, the second and final coming, and it will not be silent. This is a victorious return. Did you hear as I read the text? Verse 16 spoke of the cry of command of the archangel. It spoke of the trumpet of the Lord. Sometimes we joke about the volume of the alarm that wakes us up in the morning. Michael asked you at the beginning what woke you up in the morning. And when we hear a loud alarm, what do we say? It could wake the dead. We're joking then. No joke. The trumpet of the Lord will cause the dead to rise out of their graves. And then those who are still alive, as, as 1 Corinthians 15 puts it, in the twinkling of an eye, will be changed. We will receive new, perfected, glorified resurrection bodies and will be called up into the clouds to accompany Jesus as he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. 1 Thessalonians 14 is not some picture of a vanishing. This is a picture of a victory parade. These kings of old would go off to battle. And they would come back in to their capital cities, triumphant. The, the citizens of the city, would, they would go outside of the city to welcome the victorious king as he came back in, and they would, they would come back with him, forming a victory parade. That is the picture that we have in 1 Thessalonians 4. As the Lord is telling us about the final victory parade, when the king of kings will usher in the new heavens and the new earth, and with resurrected bodies, we will accompany him. That is the picture that we have in 1 Thessalonians 4 of the resurrection. But remember, I said that all will be resurrected. John chapter 5, verses 28 through 29. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. All will rise. Not merely the elect and in their rising. They will stand before the throne of God. Because the day of resurrection is also the day of judgment. We look to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. 
And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Resurrection and judgment, they are not obscure hidden themes in Scripture. The whole biblical narrative converges on this day. Our Lord gives us much teaching throughout Scripture about what will come, and all of that teaching converges here. And all will face it. All. Every one of us in this room will stand before the throne of God, and on that day, the books will be opened. So what are these books? What is contained in them? There's much that I cannot speak to about the details and processes of that day. But what is clear throughout Scripture is the basis of judgment, the content of those books. The record of our deeds, the actions that we thought or perhaps hoped were, were done in the dark, away from anyone's seeing. The record of those sins that are etched in our memory, or those that are pushed away, or perhaps those Sins that we never even recognized because we were so self-absorbed in, well, self. All of it will be contained in those books, but they do not merely record our deeds or our actions. Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. We judge by our very words. Have you ever said a word that you thought wasn't heard? Only to find out later that it had been received? Have you had to face the person whom you've spoken against to face the pain that you have caused? I have. It is a horrible thing. I had to repent of those words to the the people I've offended. I wonder how many more words are out there that were not received that I've tried to push away. They're all recorded. And not merely the words that were spoken out loud in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus equates our anger, our hatred, those thoughts that we feel to murder. We will be judged on that day by what we have done, what we have said, and what we have thought. 
all of it will be exposed. Can you imagine driving down I-59 and seeing a billboard that contained for all the world to see every thought, word, and deed that you had ever uttered or, or acted upon? It would take the equivalent of a rather large trial attorney. And his multitude of billboards that would be standing before all to see. Shudder the thought. And on that day when all is exposed, the measure of judgment will be God's holiness. Not our fallen sense of fairness. Not the way that we oftentimes twist the letter of the law to meet our intended purpose, but God's absolute holiness, His absolute purity, love, goodness, truth, and beauty. And there, set against His holiness in that day, there will be no verbal warnings. It's a day of judgment. No appeal will be offered, the sentence will be pronounced, and it will be executed. And on that day, the last day, will become the first day of an eternity to follow. Back to retirement. Any of us plan for that unknown day, <clears throat> but how long will it last? Two weeks ago, Lucille Randon died at the age of 118. She was the oldest living person. Now, I don't know much or really anything about Miss Randon, but let's, for argument's sake, assume that perhaps she worked until she was 65 years old and then retired. If she had done that, her retirement would have lasted 53 years. I think we can safely say that that is on the long end of our retirement. Wouldn't you? How long is eternity? I've offered this illustration, but it bears repeating again. Stone Mountain is an 800-foot tall mound of rock that looms on the eastern skyline of the city of Atlanta. Imagine for a moment a dove that would fly from Trussville to Stone Mountain in Atlanta and brush it once with its wing and come back to Trussville. And then repeat that voyage over and over and over again until it eventually would wear down Stone Mountain to a nub. Completion of that monumental task, eternity would have just begun. You feel the weight of eternity? Do you feel the weight? Of judgment. Paul speaks of the implications of that judgment in 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 5 through 10. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering 
since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you was believed. This description of judgment is actually meant to be an encouragement to believers. It is meant to encourage believers in Jesus Christ that there will be a day of justice, a day of vindication. But for those who don't know God, who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will be subject to the wrath of God, to His just and righteous anger. 1741 great American pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards preached his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's ironic, really. Edwards was a passionate and deep lover of God. He wrote much the beauty and love of God. He actually wrote and delivered another sermon titled, Heaven is a World of Love. Perhaps because he was such a lover of God who anticipated heaven, he so powerfully warned sinners of the horrors of hell. I'll give you a brief sample of that sermon as he sought to warn, to awaken those who were not in Christ. The wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. It's true. The judgment against your evil work has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are continually rising and waxing more and more mighty. There is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back that are unwilling to be stopped and pressed hard to go forward. God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate. It would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury. It would come upon you with omnipotent power, and if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand and endure. Powerful description of the judgment that awaits the damned when God's wrath will be poured out for all eternity. Revelation 20 describes this eternal torment as the lake of fire. It is the place of eternal destruction, not annihilation in a moment, but a place where the damned will spend a, an embodied eternity 
apart from the presence of the Lord. This is the eternal destination for the damned. Their divine justice will be served for all eternity. And on that day, in spite of all its horrors, those who have stood in the very presence of the holiness of God will have no place to stay that they have been treated unfairly. So today, today, sinners be awakened to the wrath to come. But also know that there is another destination for eternity. Matthew chapter 25, verses 33 through 34 and verse 36. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. The sheep are the beloved of God. The goats are the enemies of God. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. These goats will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Picture the beauty and the promise of heaven in the new heavens and the new earth that the beloved of God will experience for all eternity. For those who do know God, for those who do obey the gospel, Psalm 16, verse 11, sweetly and simply describes the astounding and unending joy that awaits those who are in Christ. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. A few weeks ago when we started this journey, we looked to Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 37, that, that asked, what benefits do believers receive upon their death? But today we come to question 38, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. This is the beautiful hope of heaven that we are going to continue to unpack over the next few weeks. Please come and hear the glory of what awaits. The beauty that is before us in this text and in all of Scripture, I come back to the question that I posed at the very beginning. Why do we preach judgment and hell? Because of the certainty of that unknown day. What do you want to know most about the day of judgment? Some of us want to know about the process. What's it going to be like? Judgment. But most of us want to know when. There are certain theological traditions that they spend much of their time creating charts and tracking world events, all in an effort to predict when this last day will come. Mark chapter 13, 
verses 32 and 33. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. Jesus is saying, we do not know. And I want you to see that that not knowing is actually a blessing. That not knowing is a grace from the Lord. Why do we want to know? So that we can prepare. And on some level, that preparation is appropriate. Jesus just told us in Mark chapter 13 to be on guard. But what form does the preparation take? Are we to be preppers? Are we to gather food and ammunition and store it in some cabin out into the woods? Many of us take that approach. But did you hear the description? Coming of the Lord? What do you think food and ammunition is going to do on that day? Word or the Westminster Confession of Faith describes the blessing that comes with the unknown because it forces us to, and I quote, shake off carnal security. Gathering supplies is bolstering my carnal security. But to be on guard is to live this day in light of that day. And so how are we to do that? We're to immediately clean up our acts to make amends for those wrongs that we have done. Perhaps it is to look around us and make sure that we are behaving better than our neighbors. But on the bell curve, we fit on the right side. Brothers and sisters, no action, no good deed can atone for the sin in our lives. Evangelism explosion is an evangelism training and methodology that has been used mightily of the Lord to bring many to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let me first acknowledge that no methodology, no presentation summarizes the gospel because the gospel is the gospel of a person, the person Jesus Christ. Having said that, there are some good things that come out of it. Evangelism Explosion poses two questions to people. The first is this. If you were to die tonight, do you know, without a doubt, that you would spend eternity with God in heaven? It is a question designed to get at the unknown timing of that day. There's a second question. If God were to ask you, why should I let you in, what would be your answer? The second question is getting at the basis of our trust. In light of what we have spoken of today as we look forward to the day of resurrection and judgment, I'd like to revise that second question. On that day, when you stand before the judgment throne of God and the books are opened and all is exposed before God and the heavenly hosts, what will be your plea? Will you say you tried to be a good person? Will you blame the other person beside you for 
causing you to do the things that you have done? Will you blame others for your failures? Will you try to compare your record to that of your neighbor? None of it will suffice. But there is one. There is one strong and perfect plea, and it has nothing to do with you and your record and everything to do with Jesus and His. You see, there is another book on that day. We heard in Revelation 20 that there are the books that record all of our thoughts and our words and our deeds, but there is a second book, the book of life. It contains the deeds of Jesus and of His bride. Our plea on that day is Jesus. Romans 8.1 tells us how to live this day in light of that one because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Colossians 1.20, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. In Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Brothers and sisters, before the throne of God above, what will be your plea? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. To live today in light of that day is to consider who do you love? Who do you love? For the one you love today will be the basis of your plea on that day. Whether it be love of self, the love of Jesus. It's this, this biblical story that runs throughout is telling us that there will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Our God is a holy God, a sovereign God. And He has foreordained that day for His glory. So let us live now in light of that day, not with hearts of terror, but hearts of love, trusting in Christ our righteousness and longing for the full revelation of His holiness and His glory. We end with Revelation twenty two twenty. He who testifies to this to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus. Father, this is your word. I pray that by your spirit it would be received as a word of encouragement and a word of awakening. Everyone in this room needs to hear it. And you and your sovereign wisdom know how we need to hear it. And so place it in our hearts. Draw us to respond and worship. In Christ's name we pray.